All right. Um, if you want to scan this QR code to access today's slides, you can do so now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another chance to gather. And we uh, thank you so much that you're a good teacher, Lord. Uh, there's so much wisdom we need in this world. We thank you for all the ways your scripture um, is such a firm foundation for our lives. Uh, what more could be said than um, what has already been said in your word, Lord? Uh, but we also acknowledge there are areas of life where we need wisdom, uh, practical wisdom for every day that uh, Scripture gives us everything we need that is sufficient for salvation, but um, we also need uh, and lean on uh, wisdom from others, from experience, from uh, just the way, the general revelation in the world. And so we pray as we interact with both of those things this morning, with your word and with wisdom, uh, we pray that you would continue to equip us, especially as we um, seek to live faithfully um, in our country as citizens, uh, as heavenly citizens uh, who are trying to live faithfully out our earthly citizenship as well in this country, in this state, in this city, in this county. Uh, help us, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, QR code up there if you want to uh, access today's slides. We are in our third class of three um, called Dual Citizens, A Pilgrim Approach to Politics, and we are still in one piece. We haven't killed each other yet, so um, it's, it's been encouraging to be able to talk about this, and uh, thanks for being such um, a gracious and engaged um, students through this. Um, We've talked about, one of the main things we've talked about is, is that we're covering in this class not as much who to vote for, but who we are as we vote. What attitudes, what priorities, what, what visions, what vision of God's kingdom do we bring to the public square? So we've talked about princi uh, two principles, and then today will be kind of six applications that come out of that. And the first principle was what? It's don't underestimate the importance of politics. Don't give in to cynicism and withdrawal. That is very tempting at times. You know, where, where politics is done poorly, the answer is to do it better. Uh, government is not a necessary evil we talked about, but a good, a positive good as the Bible teaches. And then last week we looked at the second principle, which was what? It's don't then overestimate the importance of politics. Politics and elections matter but other things matter more. This is kind of what I was trying to communicate last week. So we, we, we should not let it matter too much. We need, to resist the idol, we need to resist idolizing politics or, or finding too much identity maybe in our political party or our association with a specific candidate. Revelation 13 was sort of our guardrail there that we unpacked last week. So we should care deeply about our nation, about our society, about our, our state and our city. Uh, and we should work for the, the welfare and the health of our community in, in this earthly city, but it's not our hope. We long for a heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. So we've kind of covered those things so far. But before we start, I want to go through our little exercise to prepare our hearts for today's discussion again. So repeat after me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All right. So, um, last week, uh, I, I was finishing up, and I want to finish the, these five theses I was going through. It sort of kind of, it, it puts this idea of don't overestimate, don't underestimate, sort of this in between these guardrails, this pilgrim approach to politics that I'm talking about, I think two kingdoms theology really captures that well. And, I, and like I said, it's, it was first articulated by Martin Luther, but it really is drawing heavily from Augustine's famous work, um, The City of God. It was foundational for Martin Luther and how he thought about the Christian's role in society. And the, and the term kingdom is an unhelpful term because it makes you think of physical territories like you know, the, the kingdom of France bordering the kingdom of Spain in, you know, back in the day, but it's not that simple. It's, it's, it's the idea of the two reigns of Christ that we experience in our life. Christ reigns over all things, but in two modes. We experience Christ's lordship in two ways, the spiritual mode and the temporal mode, or the spiritual dimension and the temporal dimension. And this is classical two kingdoms, which is different than a newer version of two kingdoms that is in some circles. Um, so just to real quick go through this chart again, it's been slightly updated from last week, but the spiritual kingdom is vertical. It has to do with our relationship with God. It's mainly um, about the conscience and our conscience's relationship to God. Um, scripture and the light of nature is operative. Light of nature being, think of Romans 1, how it says no man is without excuse. Uh, you know, Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, Christ acts directly to the soul in this domain. It's, it's our direct um, experience of Christ's lordship on our soul and our conscience. But also Christ acts immediately through the declarative aspects of the church. So there, like I said last week, there's aspects of the church that are not you know, in this spiritual kingdom that are just wisdom. But through the word and the sacrament, we experience it. So God's commands and natural law um, are in this domain, and, and it's saving grace, and uh, the members are the members of the visible church. Temporal kingdom is more horizontal. It's how we experience Christ's reign through our relationships with other people, particularly authorities. Um, it's more about our conduct here in our life on earth and as we seek to relate to each other in society and in, and in communities. Um, scripture still um, speaks to some of these things, but there's also other authorities. And Christ acts indirectly through the state, through the family, and other means um, in this experience of his lordship. Um, human wisdom is more the... The way the kind of the rules and natural law, um, we, it's more experiencing God's common, or it's also been called His preserving grace, that all people experience, um, and all humanity experience this 
reign of Christ. And so let me, let me give his five theses, and hopefully this will kind of make that a little more clear, especially as it pertains to politics. <clears throat> so uh, this is by a guy named Brad Littlejohn. I meant to bring his book up again. I forgot again. It's this little booklet called Two Kingdoms, um, a guide for the perplexed. So he gives these five theses. The first four are more principles, just these general principles, theological principles. And the fifth one is, is where he gets practical. So these principles, the first one is sort of the sovereignty principle, I'll call it. Christ is reigning through worldly rulers and institutions to preserve his good world. Pretty straightforward, right? So Jesus is, that means Jesus is Lord over government leaders, and obeying government leaders can, can be a way of, of obeying Christ, as we've talked about. Um, so we insist on the centrality of Christ's saving work in the church and in our hearts, but we must not abandon the rest of the world to the devil. We need to see that Christ is still at work in the rest of the world, not just in the church. This next one I'll call the invisibility, invisible thesis. Christ's temporal reign is indirect and mediated in a way his spiritual reign is not. Um, so political authority bears authority, the authority of Christ, but it's equally important to insist that it does so in a highly indirect way and with many limitations. So think about it maybe this way. Maybe the office of a political authority is ratified by God, as Romans 13 says. But that doesn't mean that any particular exercise of that office necessarily is. The particular human beings who hold a political office still make their particular decisions as human beings with all the fallibility that you know, comes with that. And their commands only bind us to the extent that those commands sort of align with uh, God's call for our life um, and the, the kind of the, uh, the God-given ends of political authority. And so he gets kind of practical here. One thing he says is Christians are often tempted to exalt their own prudential judgments for the best kind of legislation into biblical mandates. So think about it as treating the temporal kingdom matters and that one temporal kingdom column as spiritual matters, and to extol leaders who enact these judgments as the only choice for Christian voters. Uh, he says, even when political authorities or earthly institutions are indeed doing the will of God, which often happens, we often experience political authorities in a very encouraging way, yet at the same time, they remain fragile and fallible, not something that we can grasp hold of and say, here indeed is the kingdom. <clears throat> All right, so his third thesis is kind of, I call it the preserving, or yeah, the preservation thesis of God's, Christ preserving this world through um, government. Temp uh, Christ's temporal reign serves to guard the goodness of the created order. So I'll just... Um, quote him at length here if you can see it i'll read it though while there is a salvific aspect to christ's temporal reign and i'll share more on that in a moment um, still it's true that the main objective of christ's temporal reign where he is sovereign over this world through various authorities the main objective of that is to sustain protect and nourish the goodness of the created order and this is particularly the task of civil authority 
Political authority is an indispensable means of God's restraining and disciplining our disordered desires so that some semblance of the original good order of humanity might be maintained. That men may not eat each other up as fishes, as one person said. And however valuable Scripture might be for informing this task, it is not necessary. The general norm of political rule is natural revelation and natural law, not Scripture. Although Scripture, as a remedy to our fallenness, restates many of the principles of natural law, along with instructive examples of good and bad government. All right, so kind of practically then, he says, Christians do not have anything like a monopoly on good government. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to have uh, a sense of what a wise way of governing uh, a society should be. Although there are plenty ways, many ways Christians have contributed very well to that. All right, so that's the third thesis. The fourth thesis, kind of the final principle one, is Christ's temporal reign cannot be fully separated from his redeeming work. This is just that idea that Christ is reconciling all things, as Colossians 1 says. Um, Think of also Romans 8. The object of redemption in Scripture is not just our souls. That is the primary object. That is the most encouraging thing about Christ's saving work is that he saves our souls from hell through his work on the cross. But as many places in the New Testament show us, uh, God's goal for redemption is to redeem all things. All right? The creation is groaning until Christ heals all of creation. And that will not be fully and finally experienced until the second coming. And, and politics can't usher in the second coming, but there's still very much, they are, they are a means of making all things new. If, if society is structured well and, and politics is you know, doing things in a way that really uh, fits the way God has ordered this world, there, are, there is a sense in which we can say we are experiencing some of... Um, Christ's making all things new through politics. It's a, it's a limited role, but um, that's his fourth thesis. And the fifth one is his more practical one. I call it the dual citizens thesis. In the political realm, we are called to witness in a distinctively Christian, but always provisional, I'll explain what that means, mode, to Christ's temporal reign. So that's an important word there at the end. We're, we're called to witness to Christ's temporal reign. So he doesn't really specify that we're called to witness to Christ's spiritual reign, but his temporal reign. And so he gives sort of four practices, um, kind of based on the four previous principles for Christian engagement in politics. The first is that he, he says, his, he, he, uh, the way he reads scripture is that we cannot be quietists. Loving our neighbor in our context includes being willing to take action in the public square either as a leader or as an engaged citizen, holding our leaders to account and challenging them to love justice and serve their people. Um, Another practice he says is, um, when we do take action, we must do so as Christians, recognizing the limited claims that civil authority can make on us. But just, and then his third one is, just because we enter the public square as Christians, this doesn't mean our only standard is Scripture. Uh, we can't expect ready-made solutions from Scripture to the challenges of the 21st century, even if it was a fully Christian society. 
The, the Bible provides relatively little guidance on the details of public policy. Nor should we forget that most political prudence comes from nature, not from Scripture. So we appeal to reason, we appeal to history, we appeal to constitutions and evidence um, for these things as well. Yet we still mustn't pretend the public square is neutral, and I talked about that last week. Nor ignore the value of our faith in forming and filling out our political reflections. This is that sort of ditch of secular fundamentalism that we need to avoid. And we should be prepared to admit when pressed that yes, our belief in Scripture compels us to take certain positions. And the fourth sort of action that he encourages based on his fifth thesis is our engagement with politics should be measured and realistic. He talks about that Christians should have sober realism um, in, in politics, recognizing the, the provisionality of the, of the political order. He says, uh, perhaps the greatest error of evangelicals in the past generations has been the temptation to think that more could be achieved through politics than was realistic. And sometimes that more must be achieved through politics than was appropriate. Sometimes we function as if we expect politics to change hearts, which of course is Christ's prerogative alone. And without changed hearts, many otherwise good policies may prove futile. So that's that sober realism we need to, we need to hold on to um, as we engage. The natural temptation of earthly politics is always to claim for itself an ultimacy it cannot sustain. That's what we were saying with Revelation 13. So that's the, the two kingdoms. I'm now going to switch to sort of these six final encouragements for us as we engage in politics. Any questions or comments on sort of these two kingdoms ideas before I switch? No? All right. All right, so six final encouragements for us. One, oh, yeah, Murray. Hmm. That's a great question. That is a great question. My gut would say... Um, the spiritual kingdom is more important because it's the, it's the heavenly realm. It's the lasting realm. And, and we should ha our hearts should be more um, you know, engaged and drawn there. I, but it's, it's not like it's, you know, don't care about the temporal kingdom at all. We should very much so. Um, Scott, help me out here. Yeah. Yep. So Paul in Philippians 1, I, I, I want to die and go and be with the Lord, but I forget, I'm misquoting it, but you know the passage in Philippians 1 where he says, you know, my heart wants to, to be with the Lord, but, I, but he, if he has me here, he has me here. 
Yes. Yes. And Scott's your guy if you guys want to talk more about Two Kingdoms theology. He's, he's the one who's helped me a lot in, in my own forming of it. Yes. I almost said this, um, and I just kind of kept going. I, I, I wondered if anyone would ask that. That is honestly an area where I am very, uh, I do not have much knowledge. I just, I just bought a book on natural law that I'm going to be reading, so I will... Uh, I will let you know. Again, I think, Scott, I know you've done a lot of thinking on natural law. Um, yeah. I think it's a very important idea, natural law, um, as we think about you know, the tension of our Christian identity um, in the public square and how that relates to natural law. I think we could, I, I would love to be more equipped to uh, equip others with that. Um, Scott, do you have any quick thoughts on that? Well, yes. <laughs> Brad Littlejohn is a president of an organization called the Davenant Institute. John Davenant was an obscure English reformer. I think his name's even obscure. It's just nobody knows who he is but himself. And others in the series that Brad wrote in this book. Brad wrote a book in the series. There's also a book in that series on that's the book I'm going to read. I had just got it. So that, that, that's a good place to start. If you want more technical stuff, you can, I published a paper 15 years ago about John Calvin and natural law. So you find it, you go to ssrs.com, look up my name, you'll find it. Cool. Strategy maybe being the big picture goal and a tactic is like small ways to eventually get to that goal. Yeah, that, that, that seems helpful, yeah. All right, I'm moving, moving along. All right, six final encouragements. First one is vote your conscience. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Um, you need to make your decision but you need to make your decision with him. Your conscience needs to be informed by Scripture. Uh, that's, that's sort of the, the, uh, the way that I would say that. Is as long as your conscience, as long as you are informing uh, your decisions um, as best you can through Scripture. So know your issues. What, what are you concerned about for our society? Is it social issues? Uh, the poor, the vulnerable of society? Wise lawmaking? Is it fiscal policy? Is it education? The character or conduct of, of a candidate, the environment, know your issues, what are you concerned about, and prayerfully prioritize them. Which ones are most important to you? Which ones are secondary or tertiary? And then vote for the candidate you think is best for um, our city, our county, uh, our state, our nation. Um, 
and vote as your conscience directs, or don't vote. For some of you, maybe your conscience will be in a place where you, you feel like you have to abstain based on the situation. So vote your conscience. Second, clothe yourself with temperance. What is temperance? It's a, kind of a bigger word, but I, I think it's an important enough word that I, I want to... What does temperance mean? Any idea? Self-control. That's exactly what I was going to say, Murray. You, you took the words out of my mouth. That, that's, I think, the best way to explain what temperance is. It's the sense of being measured in, in everything you do. This, this kind of nuance that you have of a, of, of a yeah, self-control. I think of Romans 13, verse 14. It says, make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. I, I see temperance kind of in that verse. Making no provision for the flesh. Just, just having self-control which of course is a fruit of the Spirit, thankfully. We're not left to ourselves to have self-control. It's, it's, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So, you know, what, is, what does this look like? There's, there's a couple things you could say. So, don't defend the indefensible as you think about your candidate. Have the humility and the integrity to acknowledge, acknowledge weaknesses and shortcomings in your candidate. Whoever you're voting for, they have flaws and failings because they're human. So support your candidate passionately, but have temperance. Don't demonize the other candidate. So just give you a thought experiment right now. I want you to think about the worst political figure that you can think of, maybe in the last 20 years. Think of even what you least liked about that political figure. Who was it? What what, what did you least like about them? Now think about this, that that person is fearfully and wonderfully made knit together in their mother's womb by God. They are an image bearer. The first thing that we should think about with any human, but even as we're thinking in politics of a, of a candidate we maybe don't like, is they are an image bearer. That should be our first instinct as we think about them. Image bearer. You know, your candidate won't lead us to the promised land, and the other candidate won't usher in the apocalypse. And remember, they are human. Our election process, it tends to dehumanize and caricature our leaders. That's just kind of the way it works um, in, in the way we do politics. But in reality, they have, the other candidate, they have upbringings, they have experience, they have families, they have loves, they have challenges and fears. They brush their teeth in the morning, they get headaches just like we do. They all have souls created by God and loved by him. So it's okay to oppose other candidates passionately, but do so with temperance and self-control, and remember they are an image bearer. And then um, don't demean those with different politics, especially I'm thinking mostly within the church, but in general. You know, how can we love people with different politics than us? I think, especially as we think about how to do that in the church, we need to adjust our expectations. I think it's actually a sign of health to have a, a church with people from different, with, with different political um, leanings. Think about Jesus' group of disciples. Who, who were his disciples? I think of the extremes of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. I mean, you could not have more opposite, politically-minded people in that day than uh, Simon the Zealot, who was you know, as, much, as anti-Roman government as you can be, and Matthew the tax collector, who, you know, worked for the Roman government. Um, recognize 
you know, how to, how to love people of different politics. We need to recognize the essentials of the faith and the non-essentials of the faith. A good starting place for the essentials, of course, is the Apostles' Creed. Two people can agree wholeheartedly and passionately on the Apostles' Creed and differ widely on um, something like gun control, for example. All right? You know, abortion, of course, is a big issue. It's hard to argue in favor of, of abortion biblically, but once you get to the discussion for the best political process to reduce abortions in society, then it moves from essentials to non-essentials in terms of how to politically um, fight against abortion. We need to respect, um, so this is still under don't demean those are different politics. We need to respect differently calibrated consciences. This is why Paul included Romans 14. Um, that's a whole class in itself, Romans 14, but one of the verses, verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I don't have time to fully unpack this idea here on the conscience, but the Bible teaches it is morally right for the Christian to heed the cry of the conscience, even a misguided conscience. All right? So again, I don't have time to fully unpack that idea. Um, it would be probably really fun and helpful to, to teach more on the conscience. Um, but, but, you know, especially Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, um, you know, that doesn't mean we should always just stay there. And, and it needs to be a conscience informed by Scripture. But that's uh, the conscience. So decent and honorable people will vote for different candidates. Thoughtful and faithful believers will vote for different candidates. And what I am encouraged by is that that is represented here at Redeemer. We have thoughtful, faithful people who think differently about politics in a number of ways. It's too easy to assume that politics is a CAT scan of the human soul, revealing your character, your integrity, and your faithfulness. It's not. So don't assume those who vote differently are suffering from moral or intellectual defects. Many of us need to approach politics with a little more modesty than we do, including myself. Um, you know, our, our political, your political views were not handed to you on stone tablets from Sinai. Um, the confluence of issues and implications are far too complex for us to be adamant that you must or must not vote a certain way on most issues. To insist we should all vote the same way, I think, creates one thing, division in the church. Um, and I think that's a, a too, high, too high a price to pay. So engage your friends passionately on these issues, but have temperance. So, um, let's see. Yeah, I think I want to say a few more things about um, temperance, actually. Remember what's most important. Working for justice is important. It's one part of Christian discipleship. But Christ's people care about justice, yet it's worth noticing that the New Testament emphasizes what the, what the New Testament emphasizes as the best means for pursuing a just world. What is it? It's making disciples. The epistles are not primarily tracks on how to do justice outside the church. They are primarily about living justly and righteously inside the church. So our political engagement outside should flow out of our justice and righteousness-seeking lives inside the church. Jesus and Paul and the apostles could have spent a lot of time talking about Caesar and the political world of that day. They did say a few things, but not much. 
So the focus was making disciples and, and um, embodying these ideas within the church together. Remember that anything good the upcoming election will do at best will be temporary and full of holes. And we desire a perfect justice that will last, which is precisely why we join together as churches. You know, the straight line judgments and whole church kind of essential matters that unite us point to the perfect justice that will last. So, you know, for, for many who, even Christians, but, but often non-Christians, their view, they, they can, it can be easy to view, for all of us, the next election as the most important thing in the world, as if heaven and earth hang in balance. But we should know better. All world powers have come and gone. So sometimes the best way, this is um, uh, encouragement from a, a book called Loving, Other, Loving People with Different Politics in the Church. Sometimes the best way to critique the present system and resist the false worship that so much of politics demands is simply to talk about something else. Jesus will win. His kingdom doesn't hang in the balance. Christians who possess this happy confidence can engage with one another amid these secondary political matters while simultaneously enjoying unity and fellowship and hope as they together anticipate the coming of Christ. All right. Third encouragement. Pray like it makes a difference. Amen. First Timothy 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So how can we pray for our leaders? What are ways that we can pray for um, yeah, those in politics? We can pray that God's will would be done in this election and in, this, in our society and our nation. Uh, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We could pray that God would change our circumstances and our souls. That evil and injustice might be restrained and that righteousness and justice would prosper. We can pray that God would advance his kingdom in our day and hasten the great day when Christ's turn will come. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he said, Prayer has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So pray like it makes a difference. Yes. That is a great question. So it says right after that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Is that giving a sort of a biblical vision for government? That is a great question. Romans 13, a couple weeks ago, we talked about one of the goals of government is uh, for the good of the people. Um, that they may do good and that they, um, for protection um, and punishing wrongdoing and rewarding good. I would... <clears throat> I, I did not do an in-depth study of that passage to be able to give an absolute yes or no on is Paul still on the topic of kings and high authorities and is he elaborating on what we want them to do? I, I think that is very likely that is what he's doing there, but there's a chance that he's kind of changing, he's kind of broadening back out to because he had, he had started kind of big in verse 1, pray for all people, and then he narrowed into kings is he broadening back out to saying that we can live a peaceful life, or is he still talking about kings there? I don't have a decisive answer, but that's a great question. Number four, don't fear. The Bible has a lot to say about fear, 
There's a lot to say about fear, but what is the main thing the Bible says about fear? If you were to summarize the Bible's teaching on fear in one word, what might that one word be? Don't. That's right. Um, I think right now there is too much fear, not only in politics, but also in our pews, um, me included. So this election, this election matters, but we need to keep a biblical perspective. It's but one small chapter in a much longer story whose author is God. So whether your candidate wins or loses, it's your God who rules and reigns. His plan is beyond our comprehension. We can't possibly see all the elements he's weaving around us. We can't possibly understand how he's going to work it all together for good. You know, Perhaps a, a bad candidate will bring about the best kingdom results. We don't fully know how God's sovereignty will work itself out. But we know him, and we trust him, and so we can live without fear. I don't think that Jesus is worried about the next election. I don't think he's wringing his hands in heaven wondering how he let one of these candidates get elected if, if they do. So we shouldn't worry either. We should have inner confidence and peace that makes us the least anxious people of all. What a powerful witness that could be to care deeply, but to not be afraid. Five, help heal our community. Think about Jeremiah 29. It says to the exiles in Babylon as they're wondering, when are we going back? Um, the letter from Jeremiah says from God, seek the welfare of the city where God has put you. Now, that passage is often taken out of context, and, and you kind of can easily make too much of that passage uh, and, and not understand it in its context, but the other extreme is to make too little of that passage. We are called to care about our communities. And while politics is part of that, it's not all of it. We have an opportunity to, to even as a church, be a disarming and productive presence in our community. Our culture needs the resources of the Christian community has to offer. We can model community and hospitality in our increasingly isolated age. We can model forgiveness and reconciliation in our increasingly polarized and cancel culture um, age. We can be models of mercy and justice in an increasingly rudderless age. We can point to the reality of grace to a world that has no equivalent. So we must look forward and look for the welfare of the city. And how, does, how do we do that? What are the particular ways? To answer that question well takes time and thought and care. Uh, but my point right now is just to simply say that that is the right question. I don't have all the answers to it. But heaping condemnation on a world that already stands condemned serves only to make some feel better about themselves. But also burying our heads in the sand, it, it doesn't also help at all anyway either. So I think the picture of being the salt and light, city on a hill, as, as the Christian community. And, and I'm so thankful for the many ways people in our church are so engaged in our community, um, even individually in your neighborhoods, but also through things like Refugee Hope, Safe Families, uh, and many other ways. I'm so thankful. And I think, too, um, I'll make this point that, that we, as we're thinking, kind of, now I'm kind of going back to thinking about politics, that we should care about local politics. I think sometimes we can get so wrapped up in national politics, which are important, that we sometimes can minimize local politics and we forget that there is, there is a lot of 
more, I think there's even more influence for most of us that we can have locally, um, and we should care uh, about that. And I know many of you are very engaged in that. Finally, fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, if you ask whose side is Jesus on, the answer is he sides with himself. He affirms and critiques aspects of all parties, and he stands authoritative over them all. But don't forget that he sides with someone else, with us, with you and all who have faith in him. This is the gospel that has become precious to us. Our world is a mess and we are a mess, so he came to save us. And he is with us. And he will be faithful to us until death and mourning and crying and pain shall be no more. Um, Until every tear is wiped away and all things are made new. So, um, real quick, I wanted to just give you, um, I was, uh, someone gave me this really helpful website, Ballotpedia. This is just kind of now super practical. This is one of many places you can go to basically see and, and be informed. I encourage you to just look at all the different seats and candidates that are um, up right now locally and um, let's see. So I'm going to type in, so this is a website where you just type in your address and um, it's a, you can view your ballot. So this, based on my address, this shows all the different things that are up for vote. And then I can click on them and get more information on them. So there's some, um, there's some propositions to vote yes or no on, on kind of how money will be spent in our, um, in our area. There's um, U.S. Senate, there's Congress, there's statewide offices, and you can just click on any of these and learn more about the candidate. And um, you'll see many of them as you go further down. It's, it's pretty um, partisan up here, but um, you start getting in some of these other ones, and they're nonpartisan, so it takes a little more research um, to know, okay, what, what things is this person passionate about and what are they going to fight for? Um, city council, public school system. There's, just, there's a lot of different things that, um, I think it would be wise for us to, to take some time in the next several weeks, the election is November 8th, to, to, to do some research on these things. So this, I mean, there's probably plenty of other places, but here's one place. If you want this website, I can send it to you. <clears throat> any, um, any questions? We have a couple minutes. I'll, I'll just say next week I'm starting a new series called Doubt and Deconstruction. Um, talking about uh, how we, as we personally, but also we can, we probably most of us have uh, relationships with people who've struggled with doubt and even maybe have left the faith. How do we think about that biblically? How do we navigate those things? Um, I think it's an important topic for us um, right now. But yeah, any questions or comments? Yes, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I'll start with anyone in the room right now. Anyone have any comments, any reactions to that? Yeah, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say similar to what Scott was saying, but I'll, I'll say maybe a slightly different. Um, I, I do believe that uh, we should participate in the government, but there are times when there are races within a ballot. So just take the sample ballot that we had up on the screen a little bit ago. Um, there could be people in there, like Scott was saying, that you might not want to vote for because their conscience says, hey, this person's flawed this way, this person's flawed that way, so in good conscience, I need to abstain. And there's and there's examples for that even within our own presbytery system, where you know you can vote yay or nay or abstain when yeah. you know, when we vote you know the congregation for something you know maybe you didn't want to build the building because you're worried about the budget so you might abstain because you're not necessarily against it but you're not for it either right yeah so give an example but uh, so I, I think you know going back to what Jonathan was saying I, I think it's important for us to participate in the election in those areas that our conscience would allow us to vote uh, to our conscience, back to yeah. the point here, but maybe there are candidates or races within that ballot that we would not you know, feel good in our conscience voting for, but you could still vote for you know, the community college thing or you know, right. whatever, right? You could vote for the other things on the ballot. That's yeah. The yeah, I'll summarize it this way because we do need to run. I, I agree with these comments, Jonathan. Um, we don't have time to you know, elaborate more, but I, I guess to my summary of what they're saying is I think it should be the exception, not the norm. The norm should be trying to vote in everything you can, but there, are, there may be ex exceptions where someone's conscience, they, they're not able to vote for someone. I'm going to leave it there. Father, thank you for this class. Thank you for this incredible um, setting to give this class with the people who, are, who love you, Lord. Um, but who also love uh, where they live and long, long to see um, the flourishing of our community. So would you help us, Lord? Help us to um, care about our society, but also care more about um, <clears throat> your society and uh, the ways that your, the heaven is coming to earth. We pray this in, this in Jesus' name. Amen.